Down to Earth with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. This is News Talk. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. On the show today, with Ireland's first carbon budgets just approved by government, we find out what this means for the country. And wildlife presenter Liz Bonin tells us about her green life. We'd also love to hear from you. You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. It's time to head down to earth, beginning with our weekly news roundup. Yes, it's our regular feature, The Weekly Planet, with Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trust in the UK, Craig Bennett. Every week, Craig helps me talk about a few of the latest environmental stories from around the world. Welcome back, Craig. Well, hello, Dr. Something or Other. (laughs) I'm never going to live that one down. The first story that you've brought us this week is about biomass. It's a potential source of renewable energy, but like all things, not without its environmental impact. So why is biomass in the news this week? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? The the biomass lobby has been uh, pushing to try and weaken proposed EU regulations around woodland protection. So as part of its revision of regulations governing clean energy, the European Commission has proposed that wood fuel from valuable ecosystems, such as what it says are highly biodiverse forests and where there is clearly no visible indication of human activity, should not be classified as uh, sources of renewable energy. But not surprisingly, the biomass industry uh, has uh, been lobbying against this and actually has suggested alternative wording, saying that actually uh, it should it's absolutely fine if their activities do not interfere with the nature protection purposes. And I think this is going to be quite a big battle. Uh, and I think it was worth us talking about it, Cara, because it is actually nearly two thirds of the EU's renewable energy comes from biomass and it's long been a big area of debate uh, between environmentalists sometimes you know within the environmental movement as to whether this is a good thing for the environment or not and it's an interesting one isn't it on the one hand I think we can all see that certainly at sort of smaller scale uh, you know people burning biomass that they've produced locally or has come from sort of uh, is spare from sort of uh, uh, off cuts from other activities and so on People are generally happy if it doesn't have to travel long distances, that that's quite a good use of that material. But I think the moment we start to, to actually be putting biomass into what were formerly coal-fired power stations, as happens, for example, with the massive Drax power station in the UK, the moment we start putting biomass into that and replacing coal, I mean, it's good to stop using coal, of course, but there are real question marks about just how sustainable all this is, particularly when sometimes you're seeing the biomass being shipped halfway around the world uh, from the US, from Canada and other places as well. So big questions about it. And, and I'm not surprised that it's going to be a big debate uh, with the European Commission. So this is these big biomass producers kind of showing their true colours and that they're saying they they feel they should be allowed to harvest wood in these very biodiverse areas that are essentially should be protected. I guess environmentalists would argue that. And, you know, I was always surprised. I I went and gave a talk at the Irish Bioenergy Association a a few years ago, and I was nearly run out of the room just for saying that bioenergy has a carbon footprint and that we need to be mindful of how we manage and how we burn these materials, because if we don't manage them appropriately, they can be as dirty as a fossil fuel based energy source. And this seemed to really come as a surprise to people, but I gather that, that people are, are getting that now. Do you think so? 
Yes, and it, I think what is difficult about this is it all depends on the nuances and, and the particular aspects of, of how it's used in a certain circumstance. You're absolutely right that there has been some research that's suggested in some circumstances, actually shipping biomass halfway around the world, for example, uh, can end up being just as bad as burning coal uh, for the climate. Um, but as I was saying before, you can also imagine circumstances where biomass might be entirely sustainable if it's a relatively small scale and relatively local. And the problem is, as ever, when you're trying to set policy, how do you differentiate between those? Um, and I think one of the key issues here for me is actually to what extent is biomass burning being used here just to perpetuate and extend the life of old fossil fuel infrastructure, as is the case with Drax and many of these other large formerly coal-fired power stations that have now been turned into biomass power stations, or to what extent is it that it is making good use of material that is sort of uh, despair or, or a genuinely sustainable? But it also points to the issue about how we think about forests. You know, for a long time, I think, uh, we've been, we've kind of not been able to see the woodland for the trees, if you like, or at least not being able to see the woodland habitat for the trees. Um, because people often will kind of th think, well, you know, what matters is the trees. But perhaps as we might talk about on another issue in this uh, weekly planet, um, actually woodland ecosystems are about so much more than just the trees. They're about the soil as well and, and so on. So yes, we can sustainably take uh, products out of the forest and perhaps burn some. But actually, if we start disrupting the fundamentals of the forest ecosystems, that causes real problems. Yeah, so this is really one we're going to have to watch, see how the European Commission responds to this kind of lobbying. The second story uh, that I actually noticed this week, it, it barely made the news and this shocked me, but it was brought to my attention on Twitter through the well-known NASA climate scientist Peter Kalmus. And I, I couldn't believe that he was saying that late last week, over a thousand scientists engaged in civil disobedience around the world, protesting climate action, many of whom were arrested. And yet we really heard nothing about this in the mainstream media. Did you did the news reach you at all Craig? I mean I picked up a, a little bit on social media and I, I saw it from some of the places that I looked but it was hardly in what you'd call the mainstream media exactly as you say Kawa and uh, of course there's so much going on in the world now everyone kind of understands that and our attention is elsewhere in so many ways but it is so hard really to cut through at the moment I think if you are a climate scientist in particular you know, it must be incredibly frustrating that, for example, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report was published, what was it, just a week or so ago, uh, and we covered that, say, on the weekly planet. But, I mean, it didn't get anything like the amount of attention it should have done. And uh, it must be incredibly frustrating to be one of those climate scientists, feel that you're kind of shouting, talking about how uh, this is such a huge, clear and present danger to society, but no one's listening. And I did find myself thinking... I'm sure you've seen Cara uh, Don't Look Up a film on Netflix. You know, I've watched it and I did, uh, watching these scientists taking this direct action to try and raise the profile of uh, just how serious the climate emergency is now, it did kind of remind me a bit of the of the scientists in Don't Look Up as well, screaming at the sky saying, look up, you know, look at this asteroid coming to hit us and let's do something about it. And I, it did feel the same way. Yeah, the coverage of this, though, I think once upon a time, it, it would have gotten att media attention. And I don't know, is it that we're bombarded now with, you know, crisis in the Ukraine and, and all these other issues? And is that why it got buried? Or is that whole uh, civil action, civil disobedience kind of movement that that Extinction Rebellion was so successful in garnering attention for? Is that kind of a dying thing that people have just lost interest in? 
Well, the problem is, is, is uh, you know, we're always very interested and the media is always very interested in anything that's new. And I think uh, the direct action uh, that, as you say, particularly Extinction Rebellion, really kind of pioneered in a sort of mass mobilization way, what was about four or five years ago now, that felt new and fresh at the time. I think one of the challenges is now it doesn't so much. And, um, you know, the, the, the challenge with any kind of protest movement and any of us actually trying to get attention is there's a danger we can get focused on the tactic rather than the outcome we're trying to deliver. What was new about this, of course, was seeing very well-established kind of climate scientists undertaking direct action. We hadn't seen so much of that before, and that was kind of significant. But I think you're right. I think the problem is, is for a lot of people, it just was a sort of, if they heard it at all, it just sounded like a bit of noise of some other people protesting, and it was kind of quite easy to dismiss. But that's a real problem, isn't it? Because we know that fundamentally what of course these scientists were saying uh, and the message they were trying to get across in these protests was absolutely right and uh, you know we've got to somehow find a way to make sure society and politicians in particular really hear that message and act on it but it's proving very very hard. Yeah my heart really broke for them because even for a thousand scientists around the world to coordinate all of that action and then to have it really not amount to making any change is is kind of a wasted effort or, or a sad effort in that stage but the last story, Craig, that you've brought me, I think is probably something you would like to call a bonkers story about mushrooms, which I happily tucked into this morning for my breakfast. Uh, This was reported in The Guardian, and I'm just wondering, this story that you're bringing to my attention, does it mean that perhaps my 11-year-old has found yet another reason not to eat mushrooms? (laughs) Well, it is a bonkers story in so many respects. But I think it's very important to talk about. So the story is that uh, mushrooms supposedly communicate with each other using up to 50 words, according to uh, some scientific research. And and what's been done here is they've been looking at the electrical impulses that are sent between different mushrooms uh, through through the fungal networks, the hi-fi, the strands that interconnect fungi under the uh, interconnect fungi under the ground remember of course when we see mushrooms that's the fruiting uh, part of the fungi really most of it is underground and uh, we've known for a long time that fungi are connected through these uh, incredible networks through the mycorrhizal networks and very 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 thin uh, what we might think of as roots but they're not really roots they're kind of these connections between them and actually they connect not just between different fungi but actually between different uh, species as well so they connect up trees in in forest as well so this is the sort of suggestion he's done lots of work on this looking at uh, putting electrodes on these hi-fi trying to understand the different uh, spiking events and you know this scientist is suggesting that the rhythm of these can somehow uh, uh, appear to be a bit like human language and up to 50 different words. I have to say, there's other scientists very sceptical about this. Uh, you know, another scientist was saying, yes, well, you know, it's interesting. The interpretation as language is uh, one thing you can do, but actually what we need is a lot more uh, research on this to really understand what's going on. But I think what I, the reason I thought it was good to talk about it, Carl, is what is not in doubt is just how incredibly important actually fungi are Uh, for our survival and for our ecosystems. And I think they've been overlooked in the past. I mean, put it this way. Did you know that probably around uh, up to 20% of total plant carbon uptake goes into fungi rather than into plants itself? So you have all that kind of obsession with planting trees to try and tackle climate change. Actually, if that's done in a way that damages 
uh, the underground uh, mycorrhizal networks of fungi, then actually it could be really counterproductive. So it's got to be done right. And, and it's what I was sort of saying before about the previous item about biomass. When we look at forests, we need to be thinking not just about what's above ground, but what's below ground. You know, this is critically important. And fungi also have amazing promise in providing you know, sustainable alternatives to some of the problems that we talk about all the time. We've talked a lot on Weekly Planet about the problems of plastic pollution, but there's a lot of evidence now that fungi actually could provide the alternatives to plastics and ones that could be highly sustainable. So I, I really wanted to just talk about this story so that we can get enthusiastic about fungi for this week. I mean, 50 words is a lot. That, would that qualify them as almost a sentient being? <laughs> I, think it, I think it might actually because I mean to be honest I'm not sure I get 50 words out of my dog very often I think I, I think I get food and garden from him and walk perhaps and that's about it but um uh <laughs> but I would think he's a fairly sentient being most of the time except when he's asleep for 23 hours of the day um so fungi yeah well I, you know maybe they, maybe they are maybe they aren't I think what the one thing everyone can agree there's a lot of weird things going on with fungi uh, that we haven't understood yet and we do really need to get our head around it and they could be absolutely fantastic uh, supporters in us trying to move to a more sustainable lifestyle so you know let's uh, shout out for fungi this week and I will have to say I'll give you a book recommendation on this I read last year Entangled Life which is a book all about fungi uh, by an author called Merlin Sheldrake. And it absolutely changed the world, I, the way I look at the world, wow. uh, Carla. So uh, that would be my book recommendation. I, I think only you would decide to read a book about fungi for your summer reading list. That's really, that's hardcore, Craig. It's a great book. It does. It is. A, it is written in a fairly trippy way, Carla. So that might that might you know work for uh, summer reading. Okay, I'll put it on my list on your recommendation. Thanks for the rundown of the planet's weekly big news, and we're looking forward to hearing what you bring us next week, Craig. Speak next week. Absolutely. Up next, we'll find out what Ireland's new carbon budgets mean for all of us. Down to Earth on News Talk with a Mundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better future for all. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. Big discussions over the last week around carbon budgets, particularly in the Dáil, as those budgets were finally passed without a vote. Here's Green TD for Waterford, Marco Kasig, on why action is so important on climate. The language we use is, oh, the science isn't clear, or the measures are too hard, too unpalatable. The consequences are too far away in terms of time or geography, or we are small while others are big. And the atmosphere just doesn't care. And he's right. Those carbon budgets are really important. And the decisions last week should hopefully pave the way for greenhouse gas emissions finally being reduced in Ireland. So full disclosure, I'm a member of the Climate Change Advisory Council that helped uh, set those carbon budgets. But I'm actually joined by two experts today who were also instrumental in their own ways in securing carbon budgets for Ireland. And we're here to discuss what these budgets mean for everyone. Ushin Coughlin is Director of Friends of the Earth Ireland. And Dr. Hannah Daly is a lecturer in sustainable energy systems at University College Cork. Thanks for coming into studio guys thank you first of all i'm i'm dying to know for uh, congratulations uh, on the doll's successful approval of these carbon budgets i think you can both take a, a bow for that how are you feeling now that this milestone has been reached a relief i think uh it's 15 years ago this week since friends of the earth and the stop climate chaos coalition launched our campaign for a climate law that had target had targets in it and carbon budgets in it so it's been 
a long time. I wouldn't start from here, but uh, it's good. It changes fundamentally how we uh, do our climate policy and planning and, and indeed monitoring. So I hope it'll make a big difference and hopefully we'll explain how that works now. And Hannah, a lot of work on your part. How are you feeling? Yeah, it's a big landmark and the budgets are, are going to be a very strong signal. They're Paris, you know, to, to put us in alignment with the Paris Agreement. But I think like everybody working in the climate space, I go through kind of peaks and troughs of emotion, sometimes optimistic, sometimes feeling trepidation because I'm not sure if we have the public the hearts and minds with us yet on the carbon budgets. Yeah, so speaking of that, I think for people who weren't following this area, which is probably most of Ireland, Ashi, maybe you could explain, probably for the hundredth time, <laughs> what carbon budgets actually mean. Yes, and I think, as you know, it's, it's best to start by saying what they're not. They have nothing directly to do with money. They are budget, they are carbon budget in the sense that it's how much of something you can do. So a financial budget is how much money you can spend. A carbon budget is how much greenhouse gases, how much climate changing pollution you can emit. And that's the analogy we're trying to use, to set a budget and then to, as we all try to, live within that budget. So that's, that's the idea. And it's a fundamental change in the sense that in the past, we, might, we would adopt an EU target and then the Minister for Environment would come back to Ireland and say, right folks, to his fellow cabinet members, what can you do for me to meet this target? And they'd go, mm, eh, how about nothing? And then after a round of negotiations, you've got to give me something. And they would finally offer something each department, but it would never amount to enough action to meet the targets. And then we'd miss our targets. That's what's happened at least twice over. This time round, the whole cabinet, first of all, on the advice of of the council, and now the whole parliament, both houses, all parties, have adopted five year near term, not distant, four year targets actually to 2025 and 2030. So nobody can claim they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, and now, as we go into the really crucial part of dividing up that pollution pie or that emissions cake, whatever analogy you prefer, <laughs> it's it's not about whether we meet the target, but how we meet the target and how much each sector will have will be allowed to pollute. In the same way as every year, there's negotiations with the Minister for Finance and Public Expenditure about how much department, how much each department can spend. Now it's how much can each sector pollute, and that changes the dynamic. It is a top-down framework rather than a voluntary pledging by by departments, and that could change the dynamic fundamentally. We hope. It gives a much bigger lever to the Minister for Climate Action uh, and to the government as a whole to get this done. Yes, yeah, so no, we've agreed on these five-year, four-year budgets on how much pollution we can uh, emit. Hannah, what happens next? Well, f- first of all, we're a quarter the way through the first carbon budget and it looks like emissions actually went up last year. Uh, I mean, 2020 was was a dip because of COVID, but but our transport emissions are, are back as they were, as we're, we're driving again. Heat emissions are the same. Electricity emissions went up by 20% last year because we're back to coal. And so we've we've eaten or consumed a bigger share of the carbon budget last year and we continue to now. So that means even harder emissions cuts in the next few years. That is because we've got a limited five-year budget. So what's next is everything. So there's no silver bullet. There has to be I mean, the Climate Action Plan last year <clears throat> had hundreds of measures and targets Um <clears throat> which were targeted right across every level of government, every department and semi-state has has actions to take. And I, I see those wheels turning, um, but it's about that mind shift, I think, that Oshin talked about, that um, to, 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 to bend that emissions curve. Um, because we reduced emissions by 3.6% during COVID in 2020, the worst of the lockdown, 3.6%. That has to get up to 8.6% after 2025 and I'm not sure the penny has dropped yet on how rapid and how urgent that reduction is yeah. and that those actions have to have to be taken now 
to achieve the the, the 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 rapid reductions later in the in the in the decade. This seems like it could be a really contentious time because we've agreed on the overall budget, but now there's this process of the sectoral divisions, the sectoral targets. So we have to divide this pie or cake into pieces and we have to say that each sector, be it agriculture, energy, transport, will will be allowed to pollute this much. And presumably that is going to happen in the next couple of months. Do we envision a lot of conflict among the, spe- the sectors? Uh, yes, that's the short <laughs> answer. Um, and I think we've been seeing that already. I mean, so I, I was kind of pleased by this last year where we began to see uh, the Irish Farmers Association say, why should the data centres get all that p- pollution? What about what about farming? Now, it was actually, the, the, the limit in the electricity sector is tougher than any other sector. But that is the dynamic we want. We want to see the public understand the trade-offs. Because, you know, we, can, we are a democratic society. We can choose to give more of our carbon budget to agriculture if we want to, and that's certainly what they want. And already we are offering that. But that means more of us have to get out of our cars. More of us have to stop using coal, our our peat, our gas in our in our homes, our oil in our homes for heating. If one sector does less, the rest of us have to do more. And so we need this debate to be public, uh, not just between lobbyists, because we need the government to to be understand that people are watching them as they take as they take these decisions, because they'll affect all of us for the next uh, uh, ten years or so. And Hannah did some interesting maths when the when the. Uh, Last climate action plan came out. There were more than maths. I'm sure it's modelling, <laughs> uh, but it basically showed that they had indicative ranges for each sector, and you know, much more being done by by electricity than by transport or buildings or by agriculture, which was the least. But only if each sector does the top of that range. So agriculture does 30, um, electricity does 70 or 80, and the others do 55 or so. Only if each of those sectors does the most of those ranges will we meet the target. So they're not really ranges. They're basically a measure of how far the Department of Environment has got in negotiating with the, with the other departments. So you'd expect if it was a range, you know, the midpoint of the range, if we ever went to the midpoint, we'd get there. But actually only if we do the top point of that range will we get there. So that means we have no margin forever. Forever, I should say. Sorry. Each sector is going to have to deliver. And you're already seeing the agriculture sector saying they don't want to do more than the minimum they've been asked to do. And that's not sustainable. Yeah. Hannah, do you feel confident that, that we can achieve these kind of sectoral targets? I think <clears throat> there's going to be a lot of benefit to meeting um, let's say the transport target I have an EV I love bikes I, I, I feel like once people understand the benefits of sustainable transport they'll come along so I, I feel optimistic about some personally trying to retrofit my house and get off oil I see how hard that's going to be so maybe all this is, is, is coloured by my uh, personal experience I do think that there is still a big reluctance in the agriculture sector to commit to, to the meaningful transformational mitigation measures that are needed which which basically means modifying what kind of activities <clears throat> that doesn't mean you know slaughtering cows it means farmers making profit and income from more sustainable activities going back to more tillage growing trees um, and 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 not having this kind of commodified uh, uh, production basis for for, for, for dairy um, but there's there's a reluctance to, to 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 commit to that and that's why they're only committing or publicly, a lot of the farming bodies are only committing to that 20% reduction in emissions, and that won't um, meet our carbon budgets. It won't, I suppose, do what's needed to do to reduce climate change because the, the IPCC report that came out last week, which is the, this big body of scientific evidence which points to the, the what needs to be done across every sector, across every part of the world, to prevent the huge damage that climate change is doing, requires a... F- transformational change in land use and food consumption and food production and we need to be part of that. Yeah. 
Ashin, the reality is there's no sanctions for not achieving these sectoral targets set forth in, in legislation. Am I right? Well, there's, there, there is a process, but I just want to say something that, that, that I think that I want to strike a, a note of hope. Like, as, as Hannah said, in a lot of these areas, the whole point is just to get us actually moving. Like, we've always been reluctant to start in any meaningful way. I, my hope is that once we start doing these things, most of us will see that most of these things are beneficial. We actually would li- we like the end point or even the midpoint of the process where we have more livable cities, uh, you know, um, more, more warmer homes with, with, with cleaner air and, and lower fuel bills. We, all, we like all of those things. So it is about giving us the, not the nudge, we're beyond nudges, but the, the push as a society to get really going. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the, we can get a virtuous cycle going for all of us, not just a like morally virtue signaling, but for a positive circle going, cycle going, if we get going. But yes, it will be challenging. Uh, I, I do hope the, the war in Ukraine is focusing minds. It could distract us significantly from, from the decisions that need to be made, but actually it has reinforced the fact that we have to get off fossil fuels as fast as possible, both for price and for security of supply, as well as for pollution. So I hope that will focus minds and help make sure the decisions we make are the big decisions in the right direction. But yes, fine. Ultimately, there's no, uh, there's no huge. Um, no one's going to go to jail if we don't meet these targets. The very first version of this bill, written in, by Friends of the Earth in London, had the, minist- the ministers paying, having sal- their salaries docked if they missed <laughs> oh. their sexual sexual targets. That would Funny be a enough, game changer. <laughs> that didn't get into the final draft here. They, in, in, in the UK, are here. But there is a process inside Parliament. I mean, the, the process with the, with the Climate Advisory Council, with the Special Committee on, on Climate Change, with annual reporting, there is a basically there is a process where they'll be named and shamed. And the whole point, one of the whole points of this law, is some of us to put the stuff into into like the targets into law. The rest of us is so that we can't miss our targets behind the scenes in, in smoke-filled rooms in the, uh, of the old days. If you miss the targets, it'll be in the full glare of the public spotlight. So finally, we know that this is supposed to happen. These sectoral targets are supposed to happen within the next couple of months. I think the government has promised by the end of June. So what are you two looking for over the next couple of months to make sure that this is happening in a, in a positive way that actually will bend that emissions curve? I suppose I'm looking for, for a clear signal from government and not just the Green Party, from, from all the party leaders about how serious um, they are about meeting these targets, that they're not just you know, aspirational sort of, you know, it would be nice to meet these, that these are fundamental to how Ireland will develop over the next number of years and that we all need to be on board, that it will require effort from everybody, but nobody needs to be, I suppose, overly um, hurt. Nobody will be hurt by these, but, but, but we all need to pull our weight. Leadership from all three party leaders in the coalition and indeed from the opposition. And how do we know if they have led effectively? Well, if the, if the very f- the first step is that the uh, the carbon ceilings for each sector add up to the total. That's the first benchmark. We need to see that at the end of June. Great. Okay. Well, we look forward to seeing how that plays out. We might have you back to to see if you're happy with the outcome. My thanks to Ushin Coughlin and Dr. Hannah Daly for joining me in the studio today. Now, just a reminder that in a few minutes, we'll be talking to presenter Liz Bonin about her green life. But first, after getting the lowdown on carbon budgets from Ushin Coughlin and Dr. Hannah Daly just now, it's a pleasure to be joined by the chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action, Limerick TD Deputy Brian Ledden. And he's here to give the government's perspective on our new carbon budgets. Brian, you uh, hailed this carbon budget as a as a big milestone. How significant is this milestone in your opinion? It's it's a big step along the way to reducing emissions initially by fifty one percent over on twenty eighteen levels by twenty thirty and then of course net zero uh, by twenty fifty. But of course, it's very significant that all the parties in the Oireachtas bought into this. 
Uh, and uh, I was very happy about that, that we didn't have a divisive debate. We actually had quite a constructive debate. Uh, and ultimately, there was no resistance to these carbon budgets, which is very positive. Yeah, I was really pleasantly surprised by that because normally the opposition oppose everything. So why do you think they, they didn't oppose the carbon budgets? Uh, generally, that's the way politics goes. Uh, you know, government proposes something, opposition opposes, opposes it. Um, I think there is uh, widespread uh, seriousness uh, across the system now and across politics uh, that we're in a very serious situation. Uh, and uh, it's not it's no time for games. We need to get on with it uh, and reduce emissions as quickly as possible. Uh, simply, there's no time to lose, as we can see by the IPCC report. Earlier, I was talking to Eshin Coughlin and Dr. Hannah Daly about the div- the sectoral division of how we divide that carbon pollution pie or cake or whatever you want to call it. And that's something that is going to take place over the next two months, presumably led by people like yourself. Are, are you concerned about that process? Uh, I think this is where the real debate is going to happen, which, which sectors uh, are going to carry the greatest burden. We're in a, an enviable situation in Ireland in that we're really good at renewable energy generation uh, and we're probably going to push uh, that uh, renewable electricity uh, sector to the, the absolute limit uh, through to 2030. It's going to be very difficult in transport because the systems we have in transport uh, are, are fixed. They're you know, it's heavy infrastructure. It's harder to change them. Uh, it's, it's harder to change uh, behaviours as well. Uh, and uh, then, of course, in home heating, uh, retrofitting is a monumental challenge. We're trying to do 500,000 houses uh, up to retrofit them up to B2 standard by the end of the decade. Uh, that's an incredible uh, program and it's it's the biggest infrastructural challenge the state has ever faced. And then, of course, there's agriculture as well, which is uh, uh, something Ireland has a long tradition in uh, and it's been going uh, in certain terms of output and emissions. It's been going in one direction in the last number of years and uh, certainly going to be challenging uh, changing that. Yeah, I mean, we heard earlier that that actually agriculture, the agricultural lobby has been committing to doing the, the minimum in terms of their range on the carbon budgets, when in fact, in order to achieve those budgets, we need them to, to, to maybe do the maximum so that energy doesn't have to do as much. So is there not the potential for a big fight and a lot of pressure from opposition parties in actually dividing the, the sectoral targets? I think there's going to be a lot of debate, but what we have now is the, the carbon budget is fixed. So uh, that's it. It's 295 megatons through to 2025. Uh, and then it's about 200 megatons uh, from 2025 to, to 2030. That's fixed. Uh, and that has to be allocated and divided now between the different sectors. The debate needs to happen. It needs to be serious and thorough. Um, there will be arguments that agriculture should do more and there'll be plenty uh, in that sector that will argue that it, it doesn't make sense for them to do more. Um, and it's going to be very difficult in the other sectors that uh, we've already pushed the renewable electricity sector uh, to a very demanding target that they're going to uh, produce 80% of our electricity by 2030 and no country in in the world in, in the kind of island grid that we have has ever done that. So if we are pushing them that hard then uh, you know, we have to understand that that is very difficult uh, and all the, all the sectors are very difficult. And of course, agriculture has to play its part as well. How involved are the public going to be in terms of, of dividing up those targets? Or is this something that's going to happen in, in back rooms between government and civil servants? Uh, we have a sense of it already. The Climate Action Plan that was published back in November, I think it was, uh, had indicative ranges. So we can see from the Climate Action Plan 
where the government is thinking. That's that's out there and that there has been a certain level of debate already. Uh, the climate action plan that's going, that's going to be published this year is going to be a definitive one with instead of ranges uh, for emissions reductions, it'll be there'll be point targets, as I understand it. Um, I think the public is, of course, going to be very in, involved because uh, there's going to be a national debate about uh, who should carry the burden and which sectors and how you change uh, the emissions profile in each sector as well. Uh, and of course, it's starting with shows like this, and there has to be a lot of national debate about what the right way to cut emissions is. Yeah, I want to talk to you about a, a really infamous number, 7%. It's something that uh, the Green Party really negotiated heavily for in entering government. Uh, I know you were instrumentally involved in this idea that that we would we would aim to reduce emissions on average by 7% per year until 2030. Uh, the carbon budgets have been criticized a little bit because they appear to maybe not quite reach that 7%. There's various uh, calculations on on what the average emissions reduction is, but I think it's anywhere from 5 to 6.8%, for example. What's your response to the criticism around the, the contradiction between the 7% commitment and the carbon budgets? So I was involved in negotiating the, the 7% uh, nearly two years ago now. Uh, 7% per year, that translated into the Programme for Government document as a 51% cut in emissions by 2050. And that is what is, the 51% is what is baked into uh, the the Climate Act. That's the legally binding target. There's different interpretations of, you know, what 7% per year is and which, which year do you use as a baseline. Uh, but uh, we are taking it and it's written clearly in the Programme for Government. 7%, we interpret it as a 51% cut uh by 2030, and that is it. So I disagree with a lot of those interpretations. Yeah, so you feel the 7% aligns with what's Absolutely. been put forward in the carbon yeah. budget. That's that's good to hear. One of the, the comments that was at the Wind Energy uh, Ireland conference that you and I were both attending this week was, was actually on the difficulty between national policy and, and getting down to the county level, where each county is establishing their county development plans, and they're, they're not necessarily all aligned time-wise, and they last for six years. So you now have development plans that don't align at all to these climate action plans. And and so there's a big roadblock there. How do we get over that roadblock of scaling this down to the, the regional level? There's definitely a question of alignment for sure. And uh, agencies that say like the, the Office of the Planning Regulator will be looking at the development plan process in each of the cities and counties. Uh, and uh, it, you know that it would be up to them to say that, this, uh, that the development plan does align or, or it doesn't. The Climate Act requires uh, all agencies of the state to align with the Climate Act. Um, so this uh, we're probably going to see uh, in the next couple of years some of those development plans, I would say, being amended to, to bring them into line. Well, you have a big job ahead of you as chair of the Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action. And my thanks to Deputy Brian Ledden for his insights in the carbon budgets and climate action. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today to shape a better future for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. And today I'm joined by an Irish woman who has made it big abroad as one of our, of the most prominent natural world presenters in Britain, so said the Irish Independent in 2020. Liz Bonin joins us today to talk about her green life. Hi, Liz. Hello, how are you? It is so great to have you on the show. I'm, I'm such a fan. I, when I first met you on RTE's Future Island back in 2020 in the middle 
middle of the pandemic, mm. uh, you were pre- presenting with Professor Luke O'Neill, and I was instantly struck by how passionate and knowledgeable you were about the climate crisis in particular. So I'm curious where that passion was born and what your first exposure to the climate environmental issue was. Ooh, I mean, I suppose it all started with just being a kid, lucky enough to be immersed in nature. I grew up in um, the mountains above Nice in the south of France, and my sister and I were always outside. Um, and that was the beginning of it all. Sort of nature worked its magic on me, and I, I became really passionate about the natural world and wanted to understand it more and studied biochemistry and then later on wild animal biology. So, yeah, I was always really passionate about the majesty of nature and our planet. And as part of during my master's, I think, and also then when I started filming, making these sort of actually documentaries and series about things like animal behavior or migrations, you know, not necessarily sort of environmentally focused series. And then, as I say in my studies as well, I was having conversations with scientists about what was happening to the planet. So, for example, I'd be filming something on animal behavior, but when the cameras were down and we were you know, having a break, the scientists were telling me, oh, yeah, but this species is moving further north and this species is completely changing its territory. Things are changing on the planet. So it wasn't really a big kind of one moment that was a big rude awakening. It was a gradual, better understanding of what was happening to the planet that made me realize well actually I want to read more I want to find out more I always think of my film career as an extension of my education I get to speak to all the experts including yourself on Future Island to learn from those people who are focusing on you know our our environmental crises so yeah I just decided I, I want to know more I want to learn more and then it doesn't take very long to kind of find out just for how long we've been studying this issue um since you know the late 19th century and then certainly in the 1950s you know there's all the evidence was there so yeah that's how I sort of got really involved in the impact of the modern world and how our planet is is bowing under that pressure. I, I was talking to your colleague and your former professor Luke O'Neill before the show actually about you and 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 he was telling me about your your career. It's quite a meandering career. I mean you you studied biochemistry. I also studied biochemistry in university and that is quite a that's a study of really how cells work. So it's quite a microscopic study of science. And then you he, Luke was telling me you were thinking about doing a PhD in this area but instead you moved into more entertainment and music presenting and really it looks like you didn't you didn't switch over to the kind of science and wildlife stuff until about 2005 when you completely shifted your your perspective what what happened in 2005 to create that change it, it wasn't so much a shift of, of perspective as um deciding that I wasn't best suited to um, biochemistry research going forward that I had an interest in the natural world and the sort of the zoology that I studied for two years of, of those four years in Trinity and deciding I was I was actually pretty much offered a PhD in Oxford and to the chagrin of probably <laughs> you know Luke and my family I decided wait 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 this is not quite what I want to do but I was I knew that I would follow I would pursue and continue with my academic career in some way. Um, science was my first level, always would be, but I decided to take a year out and just take stock because I'd never did, done a gap year or any of that stuff um, before starting, starting uni. So that's when I fell into television inadvertently. I was singing as well in a band and it all just kind of happened. And because I was in my 20s, I was like, 
well, sure, let me have a bit of fun. And it was always in the back of my mind that I would go back to school. But um, one thing led to another. And then I was sort of known as an entertainment presenter. Channel 4 came and sort of poached me and brought me to the UK. And I thought, I'm going on an adventure here. This is all really good fun. And I loved it. But after three, four, five years, I was like, okay, this is not what I want to do for my for my life. This I want to go back to school. And, and so it was sort of like because of staying open to sort of this new opportunity and having loads of fun, you know, presenting entertainment and music shows and interviewing Hollywood movie stars and all of that good stuff, um, I found a, diff- a, a second passion. And it, what it allowed me to do is to combine my first love with, of science with this newfound passion for storytelling. And I thought it would be, yeah, I wanted to be able to share what I was learning because I'm so... Uh, yeah, I'm so passionate about the natural world and what I was learning that it was an opportunity to be able to share that with the public. So if I hadn't kind of fallen into television, I wouldn't be doing what I am doing today. One of the challenges I think of for those of us who are trying to communicate these environmental issues to the public is is that they're pretty depressing. And so I'm wondering what keeps you positive and upbeat as you're confronted with and also trying to communicate these issues on a daily basis. I mean, that's a really good question. I know we were, we were kind of talking about that a little bit when we when we met. It, it's it's difficult. I think what I'm learning as I'm sort of growing myself as a human um, who happens to be more immersed than most in sort of the main issues, you know, this existential crisis that we're facing and, and climate change, biodiversity loss, all of these things that are quite harrowing and difficult to kind of face is challenging myself to lean into. I think in our culture, certainly in the sort of global north you know bad thoughts are bad we're seeking happiness we need everything needs to be positive and i think that plays a role in when things are bad due to our own behaviors and how we decide to do life on this planet we can't deal very well it's a bit sort of like with this sort of revolution um, when it comes to mental health and and depression or bad, you know sort of low feelings i've been encouraged by peers and lots of people that i admire to sort of lean into the discomfort um, it's the only way to sort of move through it and then be part of the solution by acting, by doing something. And that gives me a lot of hope. So it's by myself trying to do something myself, but also then I'm really, really blessed that I am constantly reminded of all the best traits of humanity when I'm working with these individuals who are in the field right now as we're going about our daily lives working to protect our life support system. And they are my absolute heroes. They're my role models. Um, and that gives me a huge amount of hope as well, that we have the propensity that ca- we are capable of amazing things, despite the fact that at the moment we are careering towards, as you know, you well know, um, um, a, a, a global warming that is going to cause us a lot of problems. So I hope that answers the question. Yeah, we, yeah. T- we, we talk a, a, a lot about, you know, the need to communicate these issues to the public. And I, and I think we're still quite a ways away from reaching everyone and getting everyone to understand mm. the extent yeah. of these problems. So what do you think works and what doesn't work in terms it's of a, how we're communicating? It's such a big question. It's a it's a continuing debate. Um, here's my here's how I feel about it, because, you know, I've been sort of privy to we're not being realistic enough we're not telling our audience the truth they deserve more they can handle more so then I made some more hard-hitting documentaries and then that came back around full circle and also behavioral scientists were saying you know preaching and throwing facts at people doesn't work you can't tell them what to do we need to inspire I'm very much a believer that showing what others are doing works and the science proves that you know sort of oh 
we didn't think that was possible. But look, they're doing it in Amsterdam. They're adopting you know, a circular economy or donut economics um, post-pandemic. And that seems to be working. That, that seems to be very effective for the way we humans think and behave. But you know what? I think it's a, it's a worthy conversation to continue to debate. It's important. Um, but my bigger sort of question about it is, what is it about our society that has caused this cognitive dissonance and this sort of politically aligned opinion about things like climate change? And so as a biologist, fairly recently, about maybe between five and 10 years ago, I'd, I had to start to also lean into the discomfort of trying to understand economics and <laughs> politics, which is just not the way my brain is wired. Because the two are, you know, the way we do life and how we're affecting our planet is completely inter interconnected. And so we, I, I feel like part of the challenge is better understanding why it is, which really is a head scratcher for me, Cara, I'm sure it is for you too. Why is it that as a global species, you know, we're all in incredibly closely related. We haven't been here for very long. There is such a disparity between what we think about things like climate change. You know, some people just don't believe it's real. Some people think it's all just ridiculous and this, the global warming doesn't exist, despite rigorous scientific, um, the, the, the rigorous scientific process and the evidence. And, and I wonder about that. You know, we, we should, by, by all accounts, be pooling together, coming together and working together to save ourselves and to save our planet. And we're not. Now, communication plays a big role in that, but so does the way our our society is arranged. And that's when I started leaning into reading books like Kate Rayworth's Donut Economics and others that are similar and under, trying to understand the drastic need for a systemic transformation in order to, in order to be successful in really dealing with our environmental issues. That, I, I feel that that is one of the most important things we need to focus on when it comes to being effective in creating the change that, that that's needed. What's one thing you'd like to see happen to solve our environmental crises in the next few years? I would like, you, you probably, you know, would expect from someone like me a sort of a, a, a natural history conservation-based um, answer. And, and there are many, there are many things that we can all do that scientists are doing that's, you know, they're making headway and there, there are some great successes as well as some great obstacles still to overcome. But actually, if I had to pick one, Cara, I would say that we we need to communicate more with each other. We need to reconnect with each other. We need to share our stories. We need to, to take a leaf out of the indigenous knowledge book and how they do life. We need to remember who we are as a social species. And then we need to, in some way, and if you find out how to do it, you tell me and I'll communicate it, um, stop prioritizing profit and this um, this measure of success, GDP, which is completely unhelpful and unuseful and doesn't gauge the well-being of a nation in the ways that it should, you know, really taking care of society, um, not exceeding planetary boundaries, all of that stuff. I, I, that's what we need first and foremost. We need to realize who we are, our place on the planet, how much we rely on the natural world for our health, for our, for our ability to thrive, and to prioritize those things above what seems to me this, this blind obsession and addiction to money, monetary gain, to possession. And I, and I you know, that's what I, start, I started saying fairly, like relatively recently. Um, and as a biologist, it's probably a bit of a weird thing to say, but I feel like we need to tackle that first to better understand how to live on this planet truly successfully. 
um, before we can start to all together as one global community really support each other and support the planet and support the wildlife that we share this planet with. That's very like Naomi Klein's uh, premise in This Changes Everything, mm. which was that, you know, we need to fix the economic problems in order to fix the, the climate I really problems. I feel like we do. I, that, that's where I'm at at the moment. And I'm, I'm continuing to learn. I'm continuing to read. But that's where I've, I've gotten to as a human being on this planet who's desperately wanting us to wake up and sort of see this paradise, understand and appreciate and respect and be grateful for this absolute paradise that is our planet before we you yeah ruin it for you've ourselves. done you've presented i think well over 50 science and nature shows at this mm. stage is there and you've been all over the world to film these shows is there is there a place you think that that is getting this stuff right the first place I think of is Costa Rica. And actually, I haven't been to Costa Rica and I'm desperate to go for a series we're doing with the BBC, kind of monitoring the changes of our planet, because I feel like, again, they're a perfect example of how societally they have they are doing things slightly differently, which seem to then rub off. It's probably not the right term, but, you know, so there's a domino effect of if we decide to live in this way, if we decide to not spend money on an army, but spend all that money on sort of rewilding and and, and kind of supporting our society, that kind of mindset changes that culture. And you can see how they have just more a greater awareness of the importance of, of supporting their natural spaces in order to just have a better, happier society as a whole so I would like to park myself there and do a whole series on you know again it's that behavioral science aspect of things and then in smaller ways there are examples all around the world I remember being in um, Galapagos meeting this extraordinary couple that had um, built their own sort of eco house and um, the wife had was running this school and because it's Costa Rica um, because it's Galapagos and they're not sort of restrained by the bureaucracy and the policies that maybe bigger countries um, would, you know, kind of impose on, say, the educational system. They set up this nature school that just filled me with joy and hope for our future generations. The kids were outside. The playground would have been, you know, cordoned off as a, as a really unsafe place to, to play for children <laughs> here in the UK or in Ireland, you know, but like the kids were just having a ball and every single subject was connected to nature in a very refreshing new kind of way. And then every subject was interlinked with the other. So all of these kids were collaborating if it was maths and art or maths and science or history and science and it was just glorious so you see examples of that with education with sustainable harvesting of you know resources all around the world done in a small community-based way and again those communities are leading by example and conservationists are working in that way with the sort of the local communities in mind as opposed to sort of imposing a western-based you, you know slash colonial sort of method of taking over and you know doing things yeah. Um, so there's, there's the, yeah. Well, lots of, of yeah, lots of good examples. Too. If you get that documentary in Costa Rica, I will happily carry your bags. <laughs> so just give me well, a just, call. Just, just come and let's have a conversation. Let's just celebrate the, those humans that are that are doing great things. Yeah. It sounds good to me. My thanks to one of my heroes, Liz Bonin, for letting oh, us it. into her green life. <laughs> It was a pleasure, Cara. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. My thanks to our producer, Alex Russo, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the series on podcast for free at Newstalk.com or on the Go Loud app. Next week, we'll be talking about the old sod. That's turf. But until then, stay curious. <laughs>